0: Hello and welcome to a fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In her magnificent and lyrical new book, The Emperor Who Never Was, Dara Shuko in Mughal, India, Supriya Gandhi, reorients and adds unprecedented depth to our understanding of the much-memorialized but less-understood Mughal prince and thinker Dara Shuko, died 1659, and of his broader political and social milieu. Written with exceptional clarity and in dazzling narrative form, this book marshals overwhelming evidence to disrupt the popular and common view that sees Dara Shuko as either an absolute interfaith inclusivist or a failed political aspirant to the Mughal throne. Alternating between social and political history and close readings of a range of religious texts, this book not only thoroughly complicates our conception of Dara Shikoh, but also presents an intimate view of the political and family life of the Mughal elite. Operating at the intersection of Islamic studies, South Asian studies and empire studies, This eminently accessible book is sure to spark interest and discussion among scholars in these and other fields. It will also work as a particularly enjoyable text to teach in undergraduate and graduate courses. Here now is my conversation with Professor Supriya Gandhi. Hello Supriya, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, making uh, time available for speaking to us about this really magnificent and uh, lyrical uh, and really quite an astonishing uh, piece of scholarship that uh, is also extremely uh, accessible at the same time. So really looking forward to our discussion uh, today on the emperor who never was, Dara Shoko in Mughal India. Uh, we have a tradition, uh, Supriya, on uh, the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. And I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about your journey to becoming a scholar of Islam and South Asia. How did you become a, a scholar?
1: Thank you so much for having me and for your kind words, uh, Shireli. and um, uh, just, if I may add, congratulations on your own book as well. Um, so regarding your question, um, I became interested in Islam in South Asia when I was growing up in India, and especially when I, in my late teens, was a college student in Delhi, and I was, um, I enjoyed wandering around and uh, discovering the various historical layers uh, uh, in, in that city. And that caused me to just take a look at what I was studying. I was a philosophy major, and we studied Western philosophy and the six schools of Indian philosophy. Uh, and it caused me to take a look at my school syllabus and, my, and what we were studying in college. Uh, to also think about what was missing. And a glaring omission was really Islam, Islam in South Asia. Hmm. So that sparked my interest in studying Persian. And I started, uh, just in a very sort of gentle way, uh, dabbling in Persian studies, the study of the language. And I was really keen to go to Iran. And at that point, I wanted to pursue my studies in philosophy and I thought that going to Iran would just be a wonderful idea. I'd heard it was very intellectually vibrant. And it also seemed to be a bit different from the usual trajectory expected of people attending my college, that, you know, you would go to England if you were lucky or, you know, maybe try to get into government service or something like that. Um, so I I decided to to go to Iran and availed myself of this uh, scheme uh, whereby Indian students could, could go to Iran. And I uh, was one of the few people to actually take up this this offer. And I started out in uh, Donishko, Imam Khomeini in Khazvin, um, uh, where um, I then soon transferred to Tehran because I really wanted to be in a sort of in- intellectual center and attend um, different courses and meet various professors and so on. So I had a wonderful year there, um, but a lot of the professors in Iran were directing me to look back at South Asia. I was toying with the idea of you know just focusing uh, my studies on uh, a kind of West Asian topic, but they would ask me questions about Darashugo, for instance, and they would um, ask me questions about you know the Mughal era translations. So that remained in the back of my mind, and then I. Uh, decided that once I'd, um, you know, had a bit of Persian, I really ought to study Arabic. Uh, eventually, I, uh, I I took a master's degree at SOAS, and then I spent a year in Syria. Um, a few years after that, uh, studying Arabic. So it it wasn't a, a short trajectory, but one thing sort of led to the other. Uh, and and my initial interest in learning more about Islam in South Asia led me to the broader field of Islamic studies, and then I was led back to South Asia. Okay. So
0: I thought maybe we can begin by talking about sort of the larger um, intervention that you're trying to make uh, uh, regarding the Arusha uh, through this uh, through this book. I'll come to the sort of style of writing that you have uh, in a in my second mm-hmm. question. But here I want you to maybe talk a bit about what I saw as this major theme running through the book uh, that you're trying to have us think about Dara Shuko in more complex ways that uh, sort of depart from his sort of this common uh, view or this popular view as, uh, as a, a political failure or simply as someone who was... Uh, uh, An absolute inclusivist, etc. This, this Aurangzeb Dara Shuko sort of binary that, mm-hmm. of course, a lot of the popular imaginary around South Asia uh, revolves right. around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was wondering if you could speak a bit about the, the, those two major revisions uh, uh, that you're trying to make through this book uh, in mm-hmm. terms of how we should look at Dara Shuko.
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, of course, this is a book about Dara and, um but it's, uh, you know, I, I envisioned it as more than. Uh, just a book about um, a specific person. Part of it is a comment on really how um, prevalent these uh, sort of Mughal emperors and certain kind of prominent Mughal personalities are uh, in South Asia today. They really loom large in the popular imagination. Uh, and, the, and these personas are kind of, you know, sort of added to and reinforced. They're, they're invoked by politicians and, uh, and so on. Uh, so what I wanted to do was to take figures who who really seem very familiar, so so familiar that you know we may um, feel as though we know them quite intimately. You know, Aurangzeb more so than Dara I, I wanted to take these and and actually make them um, stranger, make them less familiar uh, by you know uh, uh, by including you know just far more complexity. Uh, 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 in the in the in the whole picture, so uh, so that so that was you know uh, one of my uh, my main goals, uh, and I think that sort of ties into some of the techniques that I used uh, as well, uh, in order to bring that about. Uh, certainly, uh, one major kind of idea that I wanted to trouble was this binary between Dara Shoko as a kind of intellectual, a Sufi. Uh, who was lost in his own ivory tower somewhere and had absolutely no interest in rulership? Uh, my study of Dara Shuko, uh made me uh, believe uh, 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 that uh, that his own uh, his religious trajectory, his intellectual journeying, was intimately tied up with his own political goals as well. Uh, so, th- so that's something else that I wanted to highlight again. Uh, to trouble these dichotomies between kind of the the Sufi mystic and the shrewd, ruthless, kind of legalistic ruler, as well as uh, just to trouble the relationship as well between mysticism and politics as we imagine these today.
0: So before I come to some specific chapters in this book, I actually wanted to um, talk to you about the form of the book a bit as Mm -hmm. well. Um, I was really struck by the narrative sort of... um, if I might call it that, the kind of a narrativity of this book, and it seems like a deliberate choice that you've made as an author to really present this not only in an accessible way, but really uh, do the argument through these kinds of uh, really uh, detailed uh, uh, narratives around uh, not only the Arshap as you correctly mentioned, but this larger Mughal milieu that readers really get a very tactile sense of uh, the, the this, this 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 story and narrative. So I was wondering, as an author, how 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 did you go about um, about doing this, uh, how did you sort of manage and plan your writing for this book? Perhaps you could also share a bit with our listeners about the sources that that uh, uh, inform uh, this, this narrative. Uh, but I would just be very curious, uh, uh, you know, this, this text does read quite differently from your very uh, erudite uh, uh, dissertation as well that I've read very carefully uh, uh, for my current uh, book purposes. So I, I would be very curious this kind of transition that you've made in this book and, and the kind of narrative form that, that this book has taken how how this was um, executed by you and planned by you as an author
1: oh sure now um, of course uh narrative history isn't something that we're necessarily trained in uh, when we do a phd you know i think i, um, uh, I too uh, you know, imbibed a different kind of writing you, um, you know there's a there are certain kind of set uh, parameters, formulae, and so uh, and uh, and and so on that um, we tend to invoke in scholarly writing. This book evolved, um, actually, when I was in India uh, for a spell, uh, and I was actually thinking about you know maybe continuing my career in in India, and I wanted to write something that would be read by more than just a few colleagues, uh, you know, precisely because of um, how often these figures uh, are invoked, um, you know, partly because of the, the current um, political relevance as well as uh, an interest uh, amongst uh, readers in India. But then um, w- w- once once I started, uh, it also struck me that uh, the narrative uh, form, uh, though 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 risky and and something new for me, was a way to really show a lot of things that I felt would be hard to do if I say just focused on a particular argument about Shoko. So say you know I was like wanting to make uh, an argument about um, you know mysticism and kind of sovereignty. Uh, so I you know I would I would have of some certain sources in support of my argument, and I would lay it out in various steps. But there are all kinds of other things that I wanted to include as well. For instance, I wanted to talk a bit about gender. I wanted to talk, uh, to pull in, you know, um, a whole range of uh, other figures, uh, you know, including servants, munshis, uh, and others who otherwise, you know, may not necessarily... um, uh, enter the work. I found the narrative style um, a good way to tie in a lot of things that uh, would evoke the era uh, and that could, you know, where I could sort of show without uh, necessarily telling the whole time, uh, where I could create a complex picture that would support the argument, uh, but that wouldn't necessarily, you know, just lead to to a singular thread or a singular, singular conclusion. Uh, and, of course, the other advantage is that uh, it didn't really seem like work. It didn't really seem like a chore. Uh, I mean, academic writing doesn't necessarily have to seem that way, but, uh, you know, I, I I found the process fun.
0: Right. So I want to talk about the first half of the book a bit, uh, 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 Darashako's youth and and the sort of larger sort of milieu that he was a part of. Uh, I think one of the things that I will come back to, maybe this question as well, that you show really uh, brilliantly throughout the book is this constant back and forth between his intellectual output or his sort of, uh, sort of intellectual uh, formation, and then, of course, his involvement in these uh, 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 political um, uh, processes and, and 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 questions of sort of political sovereignty, etc. Um, but but. Um, as a question about the first half of the book, um, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners maybe a couple or two or three major moments that you see as especially uh, important, as especially poignant uh, in terms of the sort of the, the formation of this uh, of this person uh, who eventually comes to be seen as a major candidate uh, for uh, uh, kingship of of this empire. Um, uh, what would be maybe if, if I would were to ask you to perhaps uh, share with our listeners uh, a couple of uh, key moments uh, in terms of his formation as a child, and then and then and then later uh, that are central uh, to the narrative that you describe uh, in the first couple of chapters of the book.
1: Sure. Um, so the way I start my book, actually, I um, I started with uh, with Jahangir, and I sort of you know try to set the, the context for what. Um, what the empire looked like, you know, from the point of view of the court of the this this peripatetic uh, court, uh on the eve of uh, of Dara's birth. Uh, and then I continue uh, through his through his childhood. Uh, so so Dara Shuku is um uh, is born at a time when his uh you know father is definitely a favorite son, and in his uh, during his childhood, he also lives through. Uh, his father's kind of own falling out with his with his grandfather, the the reigning emperor Jahangir, uh, his father's rebellion, uh, you know, probably killing of his uh, of his of his own brother, that is Shah Jahan's brother, and then a very bloody road to uh, succession. Uh, so, so part of the uh, the point of all of this, of course, is to to set the stage for. The major 17 uh, mid 17th century battle for succession, um, in which you know, Dara himself plays a part, uh, it's an often overlooked fact that Shah Jahan's own road to the throne was was quite a bloody one, and there were moments when uh, it was really hard to predict who was going to prevail in uh, and succeed Jahangir. Uh, so I wanted to kind of to introduce these themes of dynastic succession uh, and competition early on. I also wanted to introduce to introduce other themes, um, such as um, Jahangir's own kind of um, complex uh, rulership, his relationship with you know figures, whether it was Sheikh uh, Ahmad Sirhindi or uh, the Sanyasi Chidrup. Um So, so that was a way of introducing um, all of these. One really significant moment that I had to infer um, from. Uh, from the sources, uh, you know it's not as the one kind of is given this directly. Is Gara's childhood experiences uh, kind of traveling uh, with his family as uh, as his father was rebelling? Uh, there are these kind of moments when things were looking up. Uh, there were moments of despondency. You know when they um, when they really had to kind of struggle. They were on the run, and then there was the spell where. Dara and his um, brother Aurangzeb were actually sent as hostages uh, for a while uh, to their grandfather's court, you know, where there, uh, where Nur-Jaha also, you know, where she had a, a lot of sway, uh, and his brother Shuja already had been kind of semi-adopted by Jahangir and Nujaha and was was in their care, uh, and this was happening at a time when um, uh, Shah Jahan uh, was kind of. Planning his own moves for succession, um, so that's so, so that's something we had to read between the lines, uh, but I was you know I, I had to sort of attempt to, to reconstruct uh, some of these experiences.
0: I want to uh, turn to another key theme um, of this book, which is uh, uh, Dara's uh, uh, sort of Sufism and uh, his uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, uh, experiences on the Sufi path. His, 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 before I come to his sort of writings, etc. I was wondering if you could uh, uh, talk a bit about how he got on the Sufi path and the, the influence of some major figures whom you mentioned over the course of the book, the book, Abdurrahman, Shishti Mullah Shah, Mia Mir. Um, so maybe I could do a two-part question. One is, uh, who are these figures and how did they inform and influence uh, Dara and his Sufism? And then what is the kind of Sufism that he then develops? I, I really found interesting this idea of Privileging the experiential that you talked about, and sort of keeping the intellectual dimensions there, but then privileging the experiential dimensions. So I was wondering if you could also speak a bit about the the, the kind of Sufism that he then articulates and it makes part of his discourse and his uh, and his intellectual output eventually.
1: Sure. So Sufism wasn't a particularly new thing. Uh, at the, at, at the Mughal court, uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, I think Sufism uh, kind of, uh, again, as a broad umbrella term, um, of course, you know, it's um, uh, it's our own category now that we're using, was really, I think, the, the dominant way in which, um, uh, the dominant form of devotional practice. The Mughal court uh, had moved very close towards the, uh, the Chishti order uh, of Sufis. Uh, so they had an entrenched uh, relationship uh, with the Mughal court, but it was Shah Jahan, da- uh, Dara father, who introduced him uh, as a as a as a young prince, indeed, to the figures who were going to become his own Sufi spiritual preceptors. Uh, and part of um, what I what I discuss are the discrepancies uh, between the official chronicles and the way. Uh, they describe these encounters, uh, Dara Shikoh's own writings, and th- then this unofficial chronicle that was written by somebody who later became an imperial servant and kind of shuttled between the imperial court and the court, uh, or the, the kind of for uh, which was also called as such, of um, of Dara's spiritual preceptors, Mullah um, Shah. Uh, so, so there is the, there are these kind of different accounts of. Uh, Dara's first encounters with, um, with Miamir um, uh, in Lahore, who apparently cures him of this uh, terrible illness. But the, the picture that we get when we piece together these official and, and unofficial accounts, and the, the accounts that are actually coming uh, from, from sources who are closer to these Sufis, is that Dara Shuko's Sufi journey was not carried out alone. Uh, that it was really, we, we really ought to be talking about the relationship between the whole imperial family, especially the unit uh, of Dara his sister, his older sister Jahara, uh, and uh, their father Shah jaha uh, and, uh, and this particular Sufi, um, Qadri Sufi order, the lineage of Miyameer and Mullah Shah. Uh, so it's a relationship that they all cultivated. Uh, and I would argue that uh, Dara Shukur's initial spiritual and intellectual trajectory was really uh, carried out in tandem with uh, that of his older sister. Um, so, uh, so after this kind of miraculous cure, uh, and when Dara Shukur writes about it later on, he's very keen to show that He's the one who's really singled out for this kind of spiritual favor. Uh, that he's given gifts, um, given a kind of attention by these Sufi peers that his um, own father uh, too doesn't receive. Uh, but when we look at other accounts, we see that his own his father also is is visiting these Sufis. They go to Kashmir. They visit uh, they visit Mullah Shah. It does look from these unofficial accounts that Dara intervenes and actually you know. Um, uh, Saves Mullah Shah from some, uh, you know, from a from a fatwa, from some kind of uh, accusations of um, uh, uh, sort of um, going going beyond uh, sort of uh, so- sobriety uh, in his in his own spiritual utterances. He then um, he he cleaves very uh, initially very closely to this particular Sufi or, Sufi order, but eventually, um, you know, b- by the end of the book. Uh, but and by the end of uh, kind of his life, there seems to be different stage, stages and uh, transformation in his relationship with with these Sufis, uh, with Mia Amir who passes away fairly early on. You know, he often communicates through visions and so on. Uh, so the kind of the phys- there's far more uh, encounters, actual physical contact with Mullah Shah, who's based based in Kashmir, uh, and it seems that. Um, these figures uh, are treading this balance between maintaining their own spiritual autonomy. They they can't show that they they they're too keen to get close to the imperial court, uh, and at the same time, they you know they still negotiate some kind of uh, relationship with them while maintaining their their own um, spiritual independence and uh, and thereby their their authority. Dharash Shugo, it seems, you know. Uh, and Jahana as well, they get turned down when they actually want to be initiated and when they want to sort of be disciples of of, of Mullah Shah. Eventually, they do get accepted. Uh, and then we see the rules kind of reversed, sort of, over time. So so these, these proud Sufis who uh, want to keep the rulers at arm's length become folded into the court and then we actually see uh, an intertwined relationship between the circles of of Mullah Shah and the imperial court, uh, and the, and that's something I document in the book. Is actually um, actual imperial servants who are circulating between these uh, uh, between this this uh, sufi court and the imperial court. Or other servants uh, or disciples of Mullah Shah, who then become imperial servants. So there's, so there quite a bit of links uh, that uh, that actually get connected. And then we eventually we see the domestication and the kind of the absorption of Mullah Shah into the court. You know, he starts he starts wintering with uh, with the rulers, and he has and Shah Jahan leans on him for advice and guidance uh, for quite a long time.
0: The other thing, the other thing that, that uh, uh, I, I want wanted to talk about, about that his is, uh, Baba, Baba. Baba. Mm-hmm. And, and, and And I thought that was a very interesting moment uh, in the book. Uh, could you introduce to our listeners who may not be familiar uh, who he was and how he uh, influenced and informed uh, Dara Shuko's uh, uh, spiritual journey, for lack of a better word?
1: Sure. Now, uh, you know, as with... Um, these uh, these Sufi figures of Miyamir and, and and Mullah Shah, as well as Baba Lal. One of the the tricky things that I sort of had to balance in this book is how to combine telling a story, telling a narrative, while also incorporating these multiple perspectives, uh, different tellings, kind of different different layers. Uh, so we so we have with the Sufi text, you have silences regarding some things. We have uh, you know, Tarashuku's own agenda in showcasing his own kind of spiritual um, precociousness, and um, with so with Baba Lal, we have, um, you know, if you look at kind of the Persian sources um, of the era, we have just multiple accounts of, um, sort of what actually happened. So Baba Lal um, was a, a you know a, a non-Muslim, you know, a Hindu ascetic uh, living in Punjab there's still a shrine dedicated uh, to him today uh, with uh, with his followers and so on and uh, in roughly 1653 darashuko is returning from um, a failed attempt to recapture the city of kandahar from the safavids um, he now he wasn't the only one who uh, only Mughal who, who failed in this uh, and he was returning and he had these series of spiritual dialogues with baba Lut. And he also includes Baba Lal in this collection that he has of the the ecstatic utterances of various Sufis. And then he also includes, uh, you know, a couple of um, non-Muslims in this, including, you know, Kabir and and Baba Lal. You know, uh, Baba Lal is sometimes kind of referred to as as a Kabir Panthi. And Apparently, they had these these dialogues in the form of Hindavi. There was a secretary who took notes, and then they were rendered into Persian. But the the difficulty is uh, that there is no one authoritative account. You know, there are just so many different recensions of this. Um, so these dialogues were were important, uh, no doubt, for for Dara's own uh, spiritual development. By this point, he is. He's already so sub- reached a certain level uh, that he wanted to on on the on the Sufi path. He's he starts out by producing Sufi biographies, you know, just of various notable Sufis. Then he does his own spiritual autobiography, and he kind of uh, talks about the superiority of the of the Qadiris, especially of his own branch of the Qadiris. and then, and he writes various spiritual guides and so on. Uh, but after, but he starts branching out a bit. He's. Gets interested in Indic thought, and we can see by the time he's having these dialogues with Baba Lal, he knows he knows about the Ramayana, uh, he's read various um, kind of Indic texts. Um, and these dialogues are uh, these not only for his own uh, personal knowledge, you know, to increase his his knowledge for his own learning. Uh, they become an event; they become a momentous event because they are commemorated uh, um, through. Um, kind of being enshrined in uh, in, in texts, uh, so we have these textual recordings of the dialogues and you know quite stylized Persian verses interspersed and so on. Uh, and we have lo- loads of visual depictions uh, of this or what uh, what looks uh, somewhat uh, you know like his um, uh, um, like someone who could be Baba Lal having these discussions with uh, with Madarashuko. So, there are um, you know again, many, many different recensions uh, of what actually took place. And it seems to be that this then becomes the starting point for Dara Shukhu's, um own kind of comparative workway on uh, the Majmal Bahrain, where he makes equivalences between various Indic ideas and you know these kind of uh, ideas from Persian mysticism. Uh, and he, uh he actually cites uh in this book um, as as an authority he says that this this book has really arisen r- out of his discussions with the Muvahidon, the unity affirmers the monotheists of india uh and and baba Lale is mentioned uh, you know as uh, among these
0: that's a that's perfect fit because my next that's question that's was going to be about, about. Uh, majmal bahrain
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: um, and sort of this dimension of the book, which occupies a lot of the latter half, his engagement with Indic thought and what we might today call Hindu um, thought. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so first I want to talk about Majmal Bahrain. Uh, for listeners who may not be familiar, I was wondering if you could just briefly introduce uh, this text and how you sort of, again, um, uh, uh, complicate this kind of uh, popular narrative about this text as some kind of uh, uh, inclusivist text that uh, uh, that is invested only in bringing together uh, Islam and Hinduism, but you you sort of complicate that narrative quite a bit. Um, So as a general introduction to the, if you could introduce the text, I really found one particular passage or sentence. uh, I'll read it out for the listeners. Uh, This comes on page 191, uh, where you write, uh, the novelty of Dara's project in the Majma, lies in the connections that he draws between Indic and Islamic material discussed rather than in the kinds of Indic knowledge that he introduces to his Persian readers. I was wondering if you could, maybe you could use that statement as a way to further uh, sort of explain and elaborate the kind of moves that Dara makes and that you analyze uh, in this particular
1: chapter. Um, sure. Now, um, the vocal quote already... Um, you know for a couple of generations had been uh, a site for engagement with indic thought uh, and a kind of very robust um, a process of translating from from sanskrit or uh, to to persian you know often via Hindavi, um other kind of north indian vernaculars so uh, Dharashuka was seems to have been familiar with this uh, there were all these translations uh, Available, whether uh, whether uh, translations of the the Advaitic kind of um, Yoga Vasistha that uh, that was done during uh, Akbar and Jahangir's eras, translations of these epics, the Ramayana and the and the Mahabharat and so on. So there was already this robust amount of material that was uh, translated into Persian, and there were certain established techniques and conventions. Um, of course, always evolving. Uh, there were these uh, established ways of translating certain things and certain ideas. So, you know, there was definitely um, some kind of filtering through a monotheistic lens when, you know, talking about uh, Indian deities and so on. Um, so, so, when Dara Shukur is uh, you know, introducing uh, these ideas, many of them already had uh, kind of entered this uh, Persian literary domain. Through previous Mughal translations, one of the novel things that he that he does is to really set out a series of equivalences. Uh, so the main work, the purpose of this of this text is to kind of introduce an idea, you know. Say it's, it's really, and he starts sort of with, um, with with the material. He starts with the elements uh, and so on, and he goes on, uh, you know, to to address uh, a whole range of of themes, you know, from, from the senses to kind of meditation practices, um, you know, ideas of sound and light and so on. Uh, and he, um, so, so he's constantly drawing, uh, these equivalences between, uh, the Indic ideas, uh, that he explores and discusses, uh, uh, to, together with, uh, with these sort of Islamic mystical ideas. Uh, the quran has a very prominent presence uh, throughout the al bahrain you know both from 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 the title which uh, also refers to uh, to a quranic verse uh, and um, he's constantly uh, citing and quoting the quran throughout uh, throughout the text uh, so you know there are ways in which certain parts of it you know uh, can really be seen as uh, a commentary, you know, on particular verses of the Quran, you know, like uh, the light verse, for instance. Uh, the, and there are there are other pieces that are that seem to be commentaries on on various uh, Indic texts. You know, there's a um, in the section of liberation. There's this whole kind of translated passage from the Bhagavad Purana that 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 he includes in there. Um, you know, the, the the bit on sound also has a commentary you know, uh without actually naming it on the on the mandukya upanishad so it's a piecing together of these kind of texts uh, and ideas uh that that he's sort of laying out um uh, really as equivalences you know that um with the understanding that there is some kind of ontological sameness that they share um you know which i think you know seems to be the the goal of his project here uh the, the popular way of um, looking at it is that, you know, here he was trying to bring kind of the Hindus and Muslims of the empire together with this project, but it was really not one that was meant for mass dissemination. I think it was for his, uh, his inner circles, uh, for those who had achieved a certain level uh, of understanding, who could actually be in a position to witness this, uh, this unveiling that he was displaying over here.
0: Um, yeah, I want to talk more about this this category of translation that you also talked about um, mm-hmm. just now. Um, of course, as you uh, discuss in the book, uh, he also had Majmal Bahrain translated into uh, Sanskrit uh, yeah. with the title uh, Samudra Sangama, mm-hmm. Oceans Confluence. Um, uh, I want to uh, especially uh, uh, have you talk about. Uh, you've already mentioned the Jog Basish translation, but of course, uh, the next chapter focuses. Uh, quite heavily on the uh, translation of the Upanishads and uh, mm-hmm. the, the sirri Akbar. Uh, again, many of our listeners may not be familiar with this very fascinating text, and I was wondering if you could perhaps share with our listeners some specifics of how that translation uh, happens in his in his work, in terms of the the sort of Islamicate categories that he that he mobilizes, uh, some specific uh, sort of ways in which the fascinating moves that he makes. As part of that translation project, and then with the kind of argument you make uh, in relation to what he does in Siri Akbar, if you could perhaps again introduce the text and also maybe talk a bit about this uh, the, the the modality of translation uh, that we find in this in this fascinating text. Uh,
1: sure. Um, so the the Siri Akbar is really his last work uh, that he that he translates uh, uh, along with the help of various. Uh, Sanskrit intellectuals, pundits who come from Banaras, uh, they're kind of they're, they're summoned there. They come from Banaras uh, to Delhi, uh, and they assist him in this whole project of of translation. the The way the Suryakar is is often known and remembered today is as a conduit for the Upanishads entering Europe because uh, it was translated, you know, by the uh, kind of the the French um, uh, intellectual and explorer Ancel uh, Duperon, who translated it uh, into French and then Latin, uh, so that was um, a way in which the Upanishads were disseminated um, in Europe, you know, uh, through this Persian translation, you know, rather than uh, initially directly through 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 the Sanskrit. Now, Tarashuku's translation of the Upanishads. Uh, you know, this also was an event. It was an event in in many ways. And I wanted to say a word about the political context before I also talk about the the text and some of uh, you know this the specifics uh, of of translation that took place. Um, both the both the Majmal Bahrain as well as uh, the Siri Akbar were produced when Dara Shuko was Uh, In Delhi, Uh, he he wasn't traveling as much uh, 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 at uh, at that time. He was in Delhi, and there was clearly some kind of jockeying with his brothers, especially with Aurangzeb. Some kind of I do apologize for this. um, uh, Some kind of jockeying, um, and the the idea was that there was going to be a kind of looming succession war uh, on the horizon. Uh, something that was unspoken, but definitely well-known. Uh, so politically, he was you know, trying to uh, repair relationships uh, or uh, bolster relationships with Rajput rulers, uh, whose support and armies uh, would definitely be crucial, should there be any uh, struggle for succession. So he w- so wide engaged in, um, in uh, what what today are really the most well-known of his Kind of um intellectual and spiritual explorations, he was also very active in almost being a co-ruler with his father and in seeking to consolidate political power now with the um with the Bahrain, uh, he says that this is the outcome of his conversation with the monotheists of India, with the with the Mavahedon of um, of India. So they are sort of the authority. You know, of course, again, he's trying to access this this font uh, um, uh, that was common uh, to to again these uh, um, boat traditions. I mean, he for him, it's the vocabulary that was different, but there is this kind of pristine um, font uh, of of wisdom that he's tapping. Uh, after this, he it it seems as though he delves further into texts and translations. He's looking for something. You know, he seems to be interested in you know, drawing on Vaishnava thought uh, in the Majumal Bahrain. But then he seems to want something more. He seems to want to access what he considers to be the font of pure monotheism. And He he does a number of things. He, uh, he also, it seems, uh, gets the Yoga Vasishtha retranslated. Already there were two translations uh, that were done. Uh, one... Uh, uh, for Jahangir, and one that was uh, dedicated uh, to Akbar, but also you know seems to have uh, had some connection with with Jahangir. So it's not as though he didn't he needed a new translation to access the text, but he he gets his own produced. Uh, and then he kind of seems to be moving further to um, uh, developing an interest in uh, in the, the monistic uh, schools of thought. Uh, you know, uh, notably Advaita Vedanta and um, is very keen to translate the upanishads which of course you know are um, a collection of texts that were produced over a period of time the way he talks about them though you know it's as though it's really uh, one celestial scripture so his his translation uh, is an is an event in different ways it's an event because it you know it's it's probably a big deal to have these sanskrit pundits you know come from from banaras and be hosted at the court and uh, engage in this work for um, for six months uh, it also has the effect of you know um, of collecting these roughly 50 upanishads including you know works like the purusha uh, sukta that which is treated uh, from the Veda, which is treated like an upanishad so all these works are then bound to, bound together and they create a scripture uh, in their very physical form. So the, there is the act of um, anthologizing, which itself uh, is a means of kind of canonizing and giving authority, giving, authority, giving authority to certain Upanishads. And then they're put together in the form of this book with his, uh, with his introduction, uh, where he equates them really um, to the Kitab Makhnoon mentioned in the Qur'an, which is typically not thought to really to uh, to to refer to an actual codex or a book, but you know here it is. He's produced it. Uh, so in effect, by by producing this book, and, and rendering it into Persian, he then is augmenting his own spiritual authority because it, it's as though he doesn't really have any need now for further spiritual you know uh, Sufi peers or gurus because he actually now has the Kitab Maknun it, itself. He has. The, this this pure font of monotheism that, according to him, will unlock the secrets of the Quran.
0: Terrific. Um, I want to now turn to the, uh, the battle of succession that in very um, dramatic and interesting ways you talk about towards the end of um, your book. And um, uh, in addition to sort of ways in which that sort of um, the, the succession story Um, and his eventual, uh, I guess, execution. Uh, Again, the way you tell that story, again, uh, complicates that whole narrative of this being some kind of a battle between forces of quote-unquote orthodoxy and quote-unquote heterodoxy. So if if you could speak a bit about how you complicate that kind of a narrative in terms of that history. But also I wanted to have you talk a bit about this very interesting theme that that runs throughout the book, but you also talk about it towards the end, Mm-hmm. which is that, you know, as much as Dara may have become intellectually involved in these translation projects and and other intellectual sort of uh, 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 projects, uh, it's not as if he had completely lost interest in, in, in politics or, or uh, had, had become quote-unquote apolitical um, right. as the kind of common um, uh, stereotype of uh, his might have it. So I was wondering if you could also speak a bit about that argument that you make about uh, this uh, a uh, political, apolitical binary that you also, in some ways, disrupt uh, in this in this book. Um,
1: sure. Uh, yes. In fact, you know, I argue sort of quite the opposite that that, that Dara indeed uh, saw himself as a future ruler. I mean, that's something that is uh, that comes out uh, in many of his writings, uh, including his early Sufi writings. He sees himself as a uh, as a ruler endowed with a special spiritual prowess so in a sense he's he's reinventing uh, this idea of the sacred ruler you know uh, this which was um sort of um, fashioned and performed in different ways uh, by both akbar and uh, and jahangir now the war of succession was precipitated you know soon after he'd finished the upanishad translation you know his father took ill uh, and which then uh, you know caused uh, Quite a bit of rumor uh, uh, and uh, and so on, and uh, his his brothers all kind of got ready. Uh, part of his challenge was that he had to face a war on two fronts because his uh, younger brothers uh, Murad and Aurangzeb uh, joined forces from the south and the west, and then were um, were marching northwards. And then uh, in the northeast, his uh, other brother uh, Shuja. Uh, also had kind of uh, staked uh, a claim to the throne, so he was um, uh, having to kind of have the, the imperial forces split, and this is this is a point when a lot of the, uh, the official historiography and you know Dara's own writing, you know, the sort of things break down. We don't necessarily have uh, uh, too much uh, from him um, during this period at all. Um, but it's one of the most uh, written about events uh, i think you know d- uh, during this uh, this era so there are there's a whole range of different perspectives there are um, there is you know murad's uh, t- tutor who's also a well known poet and literature, there are uh, kind of documents from people close to shuja so about the war of succession there's just um, there's a whole lot of polyphony. There are lots and lots of different voices. Of course, the common thing um, that they all share is that uh, the written sources that we have were produced um, largely after Aurangzeb, uh, who became Emperor Alam Gir, after he got to the throne. So there definitely is that sort of retrospective element that, uh, that tends to color them. And then there are a whole range of letters, uh, you know, nishans and so on, uh, that you know that may give uh, an insight into the correspondence between the brothers. Um, so the war of succession sort of really shows uh, that Tarashuku was definitely interested in, in keeping the throne. Uh, now I must add that you know while his political ambitions had really always been at the forefront, had been a very important thread in uh, in many of his writings, uh, as well as his uh, his actions, uh, especially in the in the uh, the years previous to this in in Shah Jahanabad, that his other brothers did have a good deal more military and administrative experience. So Dariushko had a, a number of disadvantages when the struggle for succession broke out. Aurangzeb, for instance, had uh, you know quite a bit of experience administering uh, the Deccan. He had a number of military campaigns under his belt, even if they you know weren't all necessarily successful. And he had been furiously working on building up alliances with Rajput rulers. You know these happened to be uh, Hindu Hindu rulers. So he, so the level of support for Dara and the opposing kind of Aurangzeb Murad team was certainly not split on religious lines, religious lines alone. Uh, that you know there was a, there was there was a mix of um, in terms of the nobility supporting each of uh, each of these figures. So diff, so the popular narrative that this was an ideological war, Or that this was a kind of a war against Dara's infidelity, blasphemy, and so on. uh, It's definitely simplistic. However, there are some hints that um, on certain occasions, uh, the message, you know, sources from Aurangzeb, including letters and so on, of course, we must add the caveat that these letters were collected later. Uh, But still, that these that we do get some hints that there was some. Vague appeal to Dara's infidelity. That there was this idea of perhaps religious um, impropriety um, on, on, the, on the part of Dara, but we certainly don't get a sort of uniform narrative defending one form of Islam against the other. In fact, Aurangzeb too, when he is reaching out to to Rajput rulers, is very overtly, explicitly talking about the example of his ancestors and how he wants to sort of live up to them and how he wants to ensure that uh, people of different religions live peacefully and so on. Uh, so he's making quite explicit references to uh, to this dimension of of Mughal rule. Uh, and indeed, you know, one one other thing that comes out in these Different narratives uh, is that the language of Islam too is um, is something that that isn't uniform. So, for instance, uh, Dara's uh, sister, I mean, the sister of of, of all these uh, these brothers, uh, Jahanara, she goes to Aurangzeb and she goes with a proposal from her father um, to really to split up the kingdom and rule it, you know, sort of uh, like an earlier Timurid tradition of uh, of shared rulership. Uh, but she she also admonishes Aurangzeb and she says that uh, according to the sharia your elder brother should be like your father so she she refers to to islam she refers to the sharia in terms of an ethical mode of behaving with your family uh, murad does does the same so there are there are ways in which uh, an idea of Islam as a kind, you know, in terms of uh, of ethics uh, is at the forefront. So it's not necessarily you know, uh, an idea that, you know, of, of a particular kind of um, of legalism uh, that, that is the only language of Islam that's invoked.
0: The final substantive question of the book itself, I want to ask you uh, about the note on which you end the book, which is the sort of. Question that uh, pervades contemporary discussions on Dara. Um, uh, the whole question of what if he had survived, what would have been the course of Indian political history, Hindu Muslim relations, etc. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a bit with your listeners how you respond to that hypothetical, uh, yet in some circles very urgent uh, uh, question.
1: Yes. So it's a question, of course, that has a lot of assumptions, uh, and it's a it's a popular question that is is brought up at social gatherings, and you know, no doubt, um, on social media, and you know, people have people have written about it and pondered about this, uh, and, and it's um, it's it's just sort of one way of you know thinking about alternate histories, you know, what what um, what could have been, uh, and, and so on. So the, the question is, you know, what if if Dara Shoko had ruled and had been the emperor and, and not uh, Aurangzeb? How would things have turned out? How would our present be different? And the assumptions in this, of course, is that, you know, Aurangzeb's rule uh, created the conditions that uh, kind of automatically led to the swift decline of the Mughal Empire, which then paved the way for British colonialism uh, and so on. So kind of it set off, uh, you know, this, this series of um, of events that led us to our present. And of course, one uh, theme of the present that is um, uh, sort of very prevalent in people's minds is uh, religious tensions, you know, whether it's the religious violence of uh, of partition, uh, whether it's kind of communal riots that we've seen in the 20th century and so on. So there's this perhaps, you know, wistful sense that, you know, maybe if there had been uh, a ruler like Dara uh, this wouldn't have happened. And now, of course, this, uh, you know, has uh, in it a whole series of assumptions. You know, there are many, many very complex reasons and larger structural reasons as well for, the decentralization, the shrinking of the Mughal Empire after Aurangzeb, it has to do with lots and lots and lots of things. Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure how um, sort of prominent of a factor, you know, Aurangzeb's own perhaps religious policies, uh, you know, maybe kind of bent towards legalism and so on. You know, how how um, how that would have uh, led to a different outcome. Um, uh, so, but it's you know, but the, the question too sort of reminds us um, of how these 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 mobile rulers uh, uh, really still do uh, exist today. Uh, so, you know, I think it's a it's a question as much about the present, you know, as as it is about uh, that particular historical moment.
0: So, as we're coming to the end of our time, so Priya, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a bit about your current uh, project that you that that you are working on or the next. Uh, project that you're working on these days?
1: Sure. Uh, so this is a project that uh, in some senses looks very different uh, to this book because it's it's not about the 17th century, uh, but it also comes out of this book. Now, when I was um, working on, on Dara Shuko, uh, one of the things I looked into was you know, the reception and the circulation of his writings and, uh, uh and I saw that some of some of his works you know like the the upanishad translation and uh, you know other works associated with him seemed to have a very wide circulation uh in the 18th century in the 19th century in manuscript form in lithograph form and these were amongst Hindus so this whole um, earlier project of Mughal indology uh, had these unwitting effects of helping to inform the way in which hinduism developed in the 18th and 19th centuries and you know in the 19th century we have we have figures like you know one of the the people i talk about in, in my new book kanhaiya uh, lal alaktari who is um uh, Sort of actively, you know, citing Dara Shuko. he has all these reprints of his um, Urdu translation of Shoko's Persian translation of the of the Upanishads, and he's saying, you know, we Hindus we need our own holy book. The Muslims have the Quran, the Christians have the Bible, and we need access to our holy books, and we need access to them in languages that that we can read, uh, not Sanskrit. Uh, and you know, and and he actually uh, is uh, gives thanks to Darashuku to. Who has, who has produced this translation and, and made it accessible. And indeed, these translations uh, did make um, a number of Sanskrit works assess- accessible to Hindu- uh, Hindus who had jobs in the Mughal administration or were somehow kind of associated with um, the, these circles of Persianate learning. Uh, so that... that um, Created an opportunity for those who weren't necessarily Brahmin or schooled in Sanskrit, uh, you know, even though they were Brahmins, also who knew Persian, to read and access uh, these works. So, um, uh, so, so that's kind of one of my starting points uh, for this uh, this longer project that looks at uh, how this Persian textual sphere informs the. Uh, emergence and development of modern hinduism uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries it also addresses um, other questions that a number of scholars have taken up such as just the nature of the colonial rupture you know what kind of transformation was this you know were there con- continuities uh, you know what um, what is the nature of this uh, of these changes you know often very violent changes epistemic and otherwise so um, uh, Persian and Persianate learning, you know, it does form a kind of thread that connects the pre-colonial to the colonial, because that was uh, the the initial language of the colonial administration, and there was a lot there were a lot of books in, uh, produced in Persian. Uh, yeah, so so that's. Uh, Kind of a little a little window into the, the, the book I'm looking I'm working on now.
0: The Emperor Who Never Was, Dara Shuko, in Mughal, India by Supriya Gandhi, published by Harvard University Press in 2020. Uh, thank you so much, Supriya, for your time and for coming on the New Books Network. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will have really enjoyed this conversation and they will be uh, equally enthralled uh, by this magnificent uh, book. Thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me and for engaging with my book.